So we're in the book of Revelation this fall and discovering that this book is not an obscure secret code book to deciphering the end of the world, but a revelation of Jesus Christ, an unveiling of Jesus in his glory and of the way that his kingdom is going to come to earth and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This book is a letter that was written to seven churches in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, toward the end of the first century. And it was written to them as they faced persecution amidst the temptation to compromise to economic and political forces, in growing sense of apathy in some of the churches, wealth in other ones, in the confusion about where Jesus was in the midst of all this. And these visions are given to encourage those Christians in their faith to open their eyes to the truth of all things, that there is a throne and there is one who sits on the throne. Last week we were invited through the door into the heavenly throne room to participate in heaven's worship service. There we saw not only one seated on the throne, but the scroll in that one's right hand. We found no one worthy to open it but the Lamb who had conquered by his blood. And this week, as we turn to chapters 10 and 11, we find out what's written in that scroll. So before we do that, let's pray. Lord, may your word be our rule, your spirit our teacher, and the glory of Jesus our single concern. Amen. Do whatever you need to do to listen well to these words from the book we love. And then I saw another powerful angel coming down from heaven. He was robed with a cloud. There was a rainbow around his head. His face was like the sun and his feet were like fiery pillars. He held an open scroll in his hand. And he put his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. He called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. And when he called out, the seven thunders raised their voices. And when I heard the seven thunders speak, I was about to write it down. But I heard a voice from heaven say, seal up what the seven thunders have said and don't write it down. And then I saw the angel who stood on the sea and on the land raise his right hand and swear by the one who lives forever and always, who made heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, the sea and what is in it. And he said, the time is up. In the days when the seventh angel blows his trumpet, The mysterious purposes of God will be accomplished, fulfilling the good news which he gave to his servants, the prophets. And then the voice that I'd heard from heaven spoke to me again and said, Get up, go and take the scroll from the hand of the one who stands on the sea and on the land. So I went and asked him to give me the scroll. And he said, Take it and eat it. It will make you sick to your stomach, but sweet as honey in your mouth. So I took the scroll and ate it, and it was sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I swallowed, it made my stomach 
churn. And I was told, you must prophesy again about many peoples, languages, nations, and kings. And then I was given a measuring rod, like a pole, and I was told, go, measure the Lord's temple and the altar and those who worship there, but don't measure the court that is outside the temple, for it has been given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will allow my witnesses, my two witnesses, to prophesy for 1,260 days wearing mourning clothes. These are the two olive trees, the two lampstands that are before the Lord of the earth. If anyone wants to hurt them, fire comes out of their mouths and consumes their enemies, so that if anyone wants to hurt them, they have to be killed in this way. They have the power to close up the sky so that no rain falls on the earth while they prophesy. They also have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with any plague as often as they wish. When the two witnesses have finished prophesying, the beast that comes up from the abyss will make war on them, gain victory over them, and kill them. And their bodies will lie in the streets of the great city that is spiritually called Sodom and Egypt, where also the Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, members of the nations, tribes, languages, and peoples will look on their dead bodies, and they will not allow them to be put in a tomb. Those who live on earth will rejoice over them. They will celebrate and give each other gifts because these two prophets brought such pain to those who live on earth. But after three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them and they stood on their feet and all who saw them feared and they heard a voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they ascended up to heaven on a cloud and even their enemies saw them. At the same hour, there was a great earthquake a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed by the earthquake. And the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second horror has ended. The third horror is coming soon. And the seventh angel blew his trumpet. And I heard many voices from heaven saying, The kingdom of of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will rule forever and always. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Chapter 10 opens with another powerful angel appearing to John. A powerful angel who swears by heaven that the time is up and God's mysterious purposes are about to be fulfilled. The first powerful angel we saw was in chapter 5 last week, asking, is anyone worthy to take the scroll and to break its seals? The lamb was found, and in the chapters we skipped, the seven seals were broken. The open scroll in the hand of the second powerful angel is that scroll 
the one that was in the right hand of the one on the throne, the the scroll that contains the mysterious purposes of God, God's plan to bring God's kingdom to earth as it is in heaven, the plan for judgment and redemption finally to come. The scroll is open. It's given to John to eat and to prophesy back to us. What we find in this chapter is the contents of the scroll. So before we look any closer, take a moment to wrap your head around that. What we heard this morning, what we're going to talk about, is God's plan to bring judgment and redemption, to bring God's kingdom to earth. We'll see it fleshed out more in the chapters that follow this one. But this is the plan. This is what God is doing. And the first thing John is asked to do with it is eat it. Why eat it? Not to dispose of evidence, I don't think. The simplest explanation goes back to Ezekiel 2 and 3. Remember I said last week, you can't understand Revelation without understanding all the references to the Old Testament. In Ezekiel 2 and 3, Ezekiel's commissioned as a prophet and he's given a scroll from God and commanded to eat it and he finds that it is sweet as honey in his mouth. Eating the scroll from God is is a symbolic way of internalizing the word of God, getting God's word into us that we might speak it back. The prophet must first eat it, must first become one with it, have it become part of them, and only then be able to offer it back to the people. And this is always the way that we receive God's word. It's not enough to have a Bible that sits on your shelf, even to open it occasionally to find some words of comfort in it. We're called to eat this book, to eat it. The word for meditate in Hebrew, as in the command that we hear often in Scripture to meditate on God's word, on God's teachings, the word meditate is the same root as the sound that describes the noise a lion makes over its prey. Which leads Eugene Peterson to suggest that meditating on Scripture is like a dog gnawing on a bone. That we chew on it, we salivate over it, savor it, take it into our mouths, swallow it, and allow it to become part of us. We get it inside us by meditating upon it, memorizing it, praying over it. And only once it has gotten inside us can we turn around and bear witness to God and God's truth. The scroll, God's plan, needs to be eaten. It needs to become part of us so that we can then live it out. John's called to eat the scroll, God's plan of judgment and redemption. But that plan should be good news, shouldn't it, for John? So why does the scroll make him sick to his stomach? The sweetest honey part is understandable, right? Not only is that what Ezekiel found when he ate the scroll, but God's word is described this way in a number of places. Psalms 19 and 119 among them. Sweet as honey, it's precious and delicious. So why, when swallowed, does it make John's stomach churn? Well, we're about to find out. 
Remember, this is God's plan for judgment and redemption. The plan and God's victory are sweet in John's mouth and in the mouths of all who follow God because they are finally vindicated. But understanding how that plan will be accomplished and what lies in store for the church John loves, that will be a bitter pill to swallow. So what is the plan? Well, John begins with a measuring stick. He's told to measure the temple, the altar, and those who worship there, but not the outer court. What's going on? In the Old Testament, measuring is a symbolic way of marking something out for God's protection. And so here, the temple, the altar, and those who worship there are protected, but the outer court is not. The outer court of the temple was called the court of Gentiles. It was as far as Gentiles were allowed into the temple. That's the court, if you remember, that Jesus clears of money changers. He says, my, my father's house is supposed to be a place of prayer for the nations. So he clears it out so there's space for the nations to again gather into God's presence. It's as close as Gentiles were allowed to come, but they were encouraged to come. Israel, by its life and witness, was supposed to be a light to the nations and a city on a hill that would gather those Gentile nations into this court of Gentiles where they could learn about God and learn about God's truth. John is telling us something incredibly important when he tells us that the sanctuary, the altar, and those who worship there are measured for protection. But the court of their witness to the world is not. We're then introduced to two of those witnesses who will be witnessing out in the city for 1,260 days. The numerology of Revelation is always obscure to us, so we'll say it this way. 1,260 days, that's 42 months of 30 days each. 42 months is three and a half years. Three and a half shows up all over the place. Sometimes it says it this way, a time times and half a time, time, times, and half a time, three and a half. They're all the same. The witnesses are out witnessing. This is a symbolic duration of time when God allows evil to have its way until judgment will come. A measured and limited time, symbolic though, not a real three and a half years that God allows evil to have its way. The holy city's trampled while the witnesses witness. And who are the witnesses? It's clear there's two of them. Does John have anyone in mind? Any guesses? Moses and Elijah. Way to go. Moses and Elijah, I think, are in John's mind as he's describing these two witnesses to us. Moses and Elijah, you'll remember, were the two witnesses that appeared at Jesus' transfiguration when suddenly Jesus up on top of the mountain appears in his glory. It's Moses and Elijah who appear also to witness it. These witnesses are described with their powers, with power to shut up the sky from rain, which Elijah did for three and a half years, mind you, in judgment upon Israel for its idolatry under the evil king Ahab and his wife Jezebel. They're also described with the power to strike the earth with plagues, which Moses did in Egypt as he called the people out of wicked Pharaoh's rule. 
And yet, I don't think we're meant to see just Moses and Elijah. Because these two are described as the two olive trees. The two lampstands that are before the Lord. And those two lampstands were already explained to us in Revelation 1. These are the churches. I think the two witnesses are carrying on the mantle of Moses and Elijah. But they are, in fact, the church. The church, global and throughout time, who stands in its vocation of witness. Two, because Jesus sent out the disciples two by two. And two, because a court of law required the testimony of two witnesses for that testimony to be considered valid. These two witnesses are the church in its role and vocation, its identity as witnesses in the world, witnessing to Jesus, who's described as the true and faithful witness. And these two witnesses are killed. The beast, of which we'll hear a lot more in the chapters to come, rises up, makes war on them, gains victory over them, and kills them. And their bodies lie in the streets of that great city for three and a half days. There's that number again. While those on earth rejoice. While those who live on earth give each other gifts. Because these two prophets had brought such pain to those who live on earth. That's interesting, isn't it? That the church as it stands in its vocation as witness to Jesus brings pain to those who live on earth. We tend to think there's something wrong with a church that's not numerically growing, that's not attractive to those around it. We try to make church as attractive as possible. Consultants you can hire by the droves to come in and tell you how to be more attractive to those who live around you, how to shape programs to make church uh, draw people in by meeting their felt needs. And sometimes when the Bible's ethical requirements become unpopular in our culture, we then just hide them because they're not attractive or change our minds about them. We often think we need to accommodate ourselves to the culture and just say whatever they want to hear because our highest goal is to be as attractive as possible and draw people in. But here are the two witnesses, symbols of the church in its role and calling to the world And the world hates them for that witness, rejoices over them when they die, gives each other's presence as they lie dead in the streets. And John isn't just making this stuff up. Jesus was clear about it too in John 15 as he's preparing his disciples for his departure. He teaches them, if the world hates you, know that it hated me first. If you belonged to the world, the world would love you as its own. However, I've chosen you out of the world and you don't belong to the world. That's why the world hates you. Now that doesn't give us license to be jerks. Some Christians do that. They're just mean and difficult and bigoted people. And when the world is angry at them about it, they just quote Jesus and walk away. Yet when John sees Jesus, he does see a sharp two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. In Matthew, Jesus says, I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. A sword that he says will divide even families against one another. 
Jesus didn't come to make us all comfortable, to put the world at ease, but to speak truth. He is the true and faithful witness after all. And in speaking truth, those words are like a sword on his lips. Those same words on our lips are described as flaming fire that comes out and consumes our enemies. It's the word that kills before it makes alive again. Frederick Buechner actually said it really well when he wrote, the gospel is bad news before it's good news. It's the news that a man is a sinner, to use the old word, that he is evil in the imagination of his heart, that when he looks in the mirror all in a lather, what he sees is at least eight parts chicken, phony, slob. That's the tragedy. But it's also the news that he's loved anyway, cherished, forgiven, bleeding to be sure, but also bled for. And that's the comedy. One reason I think the scroll is bitter in the stomach is because of the way this message is rejected by the world. That it is sweet to honey, sweet as honey in the mouth of God's faithful ones, but bitter in their stomachs because it is rejected by the world. These witnesses were dressed for mourning in sackcloth for repentance. They're calling the world to turn from sin and receive the bountiful grace of God, but that grace can only be received when we die. Die to ourselves, die to sin, die to our pride. And that is not an attractive message. So that when the witnesses are killed, the earth rejoices. You may be asking about now, what sort of plan is this? That the two witnesses sent out to bear witness are now dead in the streets. The world is rejoicing. It's so mad at them. Where is this going? What sort of plan is this? Well, a familiar one. Does it sound familiar? These witnesses spend three and a half years giving witness to the truth. The same length of time, at least in the Gospel of John, that Jesus goes about his ministry of teaching and healing. They are killed as the world cheers, just like the crucifixion. They lie dead for three and a half days, just a little longer than Jesus did. The breath of life from God comes back into them. They rise and ascend up into heaven, just as Jesus did in his resurrection and ascension. This is the way of Christ. And when all of it is finished, there's an earthquake. A tenth of the city falls, 7,000 people die, and the rest give glory to the God of heaven. It can be easy to miss right here. But what happened in that moment, what happened right there, is that the nations repented and God's victory was won. In case you missed it, the seventh angel finally does blow his trumpet, which means the mysterious purposes of God have been accomplished. And the voices from heaven announce God's victory. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and they will reign forever and always. 
So what was it that happened? How was that victory accomplished? Well, if you read back through chapters 6 through 9 that we skipped this week, I know that you all did. Um, you wanted to make sure you caught what was in it, so you've been spending the whole week reflecting on chapters 6 through 9. You would have noticed a series, two series of seven judgments that fell upon the earth because of their evil. Seven judgments from God. And yet, after those two sets of seven judgments, it says clearly that the nations do not repent. And in fact, the nations actually hate God and despise God all the more. So how is it that this victory is finally won? That God's kingdom does finally come? It's that moment when the church follows in the way of Jesus. The church, who is protected from all eternity as the new spiritual temple, but unprotected in the realm of its witness to the world, stands up and gives its witness. The church tells the world about the truth it has discovered in Jesus. But just as with our Lord, it is not the teaching that will change the hearts and lives of the world around us. The witness that brings God's kingdom to earth is the church, the people of God, becoming like Christ in death. Is God allowing his witnesses to be trampled and killed for their testimony? That Christ's blood in them would be poured out? That by giving their lives, God's grace and mercy might be manifested in the world? And it's in seeing that sacrifice lived out by Christians. It's by seeing God's grace and mercy poured out on them in vindication. That is how God's kingdom comes to earth. That is how Christ wins the victory. Not by might, not by power, but by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. That's God's plan. And I don't know about you, but it is sweet as honey in my mouth and makes my stomach churn. This is the plan we'll see unfold in the chapters to come. God's kingdom comes as the church bears witness, as Christians follow in the way of Jesus and remain faithful even unto death. That Christ's victory was won on a cross. So how would God's kingdom come in any other way? May God give us courage to be witnesses. To enact God's grace in our lives. To eat this book. And to allow Christ and Christ's ways to become a part of us. That we might live them out then in the world even when it doesn't want to hear it. May God give us grace to count the cost of following him and to face whatever comes confident in the resurrection of Jesus. And may God make our witness strong that the nations would indeed turn to God in repentance, that they would turn from sin and embrace the mysterious way of the cross, that God's kingdom may come, and God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven.
Amen.